Next Sunday, uh, we'll start our uh, first of four Sundays in the season of Advent. Uh, you know, not all wings of the church uh, would, would observe a, a season like Advent. Um, and even in our own tradition, uh, you know, there's plenty of Presbyterians who would say, we have a church calendar, it runs from Sunday to Sunday, and that, that's it. Um, we, we use it in, in our church for the particular discipleship benefits of being reminded that, that time and history is actually organized around the person of Jesus. It is not organized uh, around months and years and days of the week. It actually revolves around Jesus. And uh, I, I think the season of Advent is is particularly helpful for us as people who are embedded in a very consumeristic society. I mean, before Thanksgiving is even here, you see people launching into to Christmas stuff, and it's like full-on Christmas season. And if you're one of those people, I'm not, I'm not here to bag on you. That's, you know, sing your songs, whatever. Um, but there is a real benefit to standing with much of the church and saying, actually, all of our hope is not in the celebration of a feeling. It's not in the celebration of, um, you know, snow and lights in the air and, and buying Christmas gifts and this sort of thing that people appear to love in the season of Christmas, and we're, and we're not just sort of pushing that experience of that day for as long as possible like a, like a drug, um, but actually all our hopes are focused on Jesus, and what we're longing for is for Jesus to come and to set the world right as it should be, and we are not using Advent to just mark the days until Christmas when Jesus is born like a baby. We're actually using the, the season of Advent for us to look forward uh, to when that Jesus comes in power and ruins finally and forever all of the powers of sin and darkness and death. So Advent is a useful time for us to kind of stir up the right hungers inside of us so for four Sundays in Advent, we'll be preaching a lot in the, in the Old Testament of the words of the prophets who are teaching us to look for the coming of the Messiah. We'll be uh, talking about some passages in the Gospels that, you know, you're maybe uncomfortable with where Jesus says these things about kingdoms falling and rumors of darkness and earthquakes coming and cities being overturned. So we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus so that when we celebrate Christmas, we're reminded that this God who, who judges and sets right has mercifully come as Jesus of Nazareth, born as one of us. It's a reorienting of the story in our lives within that story in a helpful way. And uh, it's entirely appropriate, I think, to, to this Sunday be celebrating this King Jesus that we have who reigns now at the right hand of the Father, who is for us our great high priest, who is somehow miraculously our brother by his own work for us and on our behalf. This morning we are finishing the book of James. Uh, James is Jesus' 
half-brother. James shared, uh, not at the same time, but, but came from the same womb as, as Jesus. And James is writing, we've looked at, in a way that is encouraging, commanding, uh, pressing these people who are Christians of Jewish descent, we believe, to, to live out a, a life that wisely submits to, to Jesus' rule. Here he is closing out uh, this letter, this sermon, this address, and pushes us to reorient our lives with Jesus as an active participant in the good and the bad. So would you read with me? Um, you can look at your Bible in your lap, hopefully, or if you don't have a Bible, you can read it on the screen. If you'd like a Bible, please let us know. We can help you get one. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We've already covered these last two verses, but I'm just going to read them as the letter closes naturally. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us. You you reign at the right hand of the Father, and it is better for us that you left, you said that we might be comforted and filled by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that your word would pierce our hearts, that your spirit would work on us, would tenderize our heart, that you would make us to, to thrill and to delight in your word, that we would be moved to love you and to move in response of love with our whole life. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and your care for us. Amen. James here is is moving us to to think about some things that that are maybe uncomfortable and and in ways that make us uncomfortable. In some ways, James' instructions here seem like for a different time because we are a people of science. And if we were talking to, to friends, family, whatever, and uh, they told us that they were sick, our response would be, uh, maybe you should go to the doctor. Maybe you should get on some antibiotics, or you know, maybe it's viral, so you just sort of take some ibuprofen, drink a lot of water, ride this thing out, it's gonna pass. We understand basically how and why people get sick, and we understand basically how those things resolve themselves or how medicine might help resolve those things. 
And here's James telling his hearers, telling us, are you suffering? Let him pray. And then he also gives this flip side of the coin. Is everything going well? Are you happy? Then you should sing songs of praise. And this is actually what James has been pushing his hearers to do in many ways all throughout his book. What he wants them to do is blow the lid off of their life and the world that they're living in and stop deceiving themselves, stop pretending like God is not involved in the world. It's tempting for all the the business people that he's written to, the traders. It's been tempting for the people who come together and gather. All of these people that he's addressing, the temptation is to think that the world is a closed world and that you are basically responsible for your own actions. You need to take care of yourself. You need to master the world as best you can. And James here is saying to this group of people, those who are sick, those who are happy, the same thing he said to those other categories of people, that the world is not closed, that there is no roof over the world, and you cannot put a lid on the world, but instead blow it off, acknowledge acknowledge the reality of the way the world is, and invite God into the particularities of your experience, that even your illness might be something that God would involve himself in. And this is, this is a foreign story of the world to us now. Maybe as much as any time in history, if not more, it is hard for us to believe that we have a God who might involve Himself even in illness. That even your sickness might be something that God would come and deal with. But this is, in fact, the view of the world that Scripture proclaims. That God made the world and He has not abandoned it, but has chosen to involve Himself in the world in perpetuity. And there's some uncomfortable things about what James says here because when we think about sickness and healing, there's two strange ways, two strange mistakes in the view of Scripture. The the first one is to assume I am sick because I have sinned. If I am sick, it must be because I have sinned. And there's several places where Scripture actually actively and directly fights this assumption. Jesus has this exchange in the Gospels where His followers point out a blind man and says, who sinned? Whose fault is it this man is blind? And Jesus swerves around their assumption and says this has nothing to do with anybody's sin. But God is instead doing something else with this man's blindness. The whole book of Job is this dialogue between people who assume that sickness and suffering happens because of sin. And you're supposed to read the whole book of Job and know that Job is in fact not suffering because of sin. You should, you're being told at the very beginning of that book, he is a righteous man, in fact. That something else is going on in his suffering that has nothing to do with his sin. So it is a mistake, according to Scripture, to believe that all suffering, all sickness, comes as a result of sin. That's not what James is saying here, because that's not what Scripture says to us. But, but there is another mistake 
the other mistake that we, we tend not to think about, I would say, is to assume that your sickness has nothing to do with sin, sin ever. Because in fact, Scripture does give this view of sickness, both physical and spiritual, that says there, there very well could be a link between sin and sickness. That actually sickness is a great time for you to stop and reflect on your mortality and maybe your immorality. That actually maybe something is going on. And that's never spelled out either. There's no helpful sort of decision tree. If you're sick like this, then yes, sin. If not, then go to point B. Decide, is this because of sin? That's, that's not the point of what James is saying. And I'd say that's not the point of what Scripture is saying. It's better to step back for a moment and to acknowledge this larger reality that James is describing where the spiritual and physical world they overlap in ways that we tend to ignore. There's this overlap. There's this touch point. And we cannot pretend to be either one way or the other, but we are in fact people, body and soul. God made us this way. And James says, if you are sick, you should pray. Now, you shouldn't just pray. You should also go to the doctor. James is coming out of a, a Jewish wisdom tradition. It's, it's all throughout his words that openly acknowledges the benefits and the blessings and graces of medical professionals. The, this Jewish wisdom literature, which is extra biblical, would say, healers are from the Lord. Listen to them, basically, is what it says. We, though, tend to subsume healers, medical professionals, and God and say what you should do is you should go to the doctor, period, end of story. No, no. The world is open. You should pray and go to the doctor and put your arms open wide for all the ways that God might involve himself in your story in unexpected ways. And there is no sort of end date for this command either. You'll find no footnote in your Bible where it says, this expires at the end of the first century A.D. That footnote is not there in your English version. It's not there in the Greek. It is an ongoing command for even us. And many of you... Uh, have been raised up in traditions where praying for healing is normal and you expect that occasionally God might actually supernaturally heal, heal people. And for some of you, you grew up in church traditions where that is weird. You do not expect God to work in that way. And there's, there's difficulties and dangers in both traditions, and I can say that as somebody with a foot in both. I grew up in churches where it was normal to ask God to heal somebody miraculously, instantaneously, physically, bodily. So, for example, when I, when I was young, 
This was so normal that when I was dealing with this long-term chronic knee problem at the age of 10, my parents ignored for a year, painfully, and I was looking at getting pins put in my knees as, as a kid, I was like, well, obviously we should ask church to pray for me that I'd be healed. It was just normal. That was the world that I grew up in. And it was not very surprising to me when the next time we went to the doctor, the doctor was entirely confounded by what my knee x-rays looked like that time as compared to the previous time. There was no medical explanation for what happened other than that God intervened and healed me. And I have never had to crawl out of bed with the pain that I did before. As a 10-year-old, that just felt normal because that's the world that I grew up in. And the problem, the difficulty that comes out of a space like that is I was also a 15-year-old kid at my bedside of my grandmother who died, I felt, far too early after I pleaded with God to please come and heal her like he had healed me. And I could not, I could not put those two things in the same room together and I did not understand. That's hard. That's really hard. And I have no resolution for you or for me. But there's also difficulty in believing that there's no real point in asking God to do something sudden and miraculous. Because then you, you are living in a story about God in the world that is different from the story of the Bible. Jesus assumes this open heaven, this, this lid off the world has been removed. And if you just decline to ever even ask God to do something, that's so foreign to the logic of Scripture. And you, you may wonder, like, well, if I ask and God says no, as He often does, then is James telling me that I am lacking? I, I don't know if I have the, the faith to pray for something. Because this is kind of what it sounds like, right? The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. But it's important to understand that in the view of Scripture, it is never your faith that saves anyone from anything. There's a lot of doubters in the Bible who somehow miraculously and unexpectedly receive supernatural gifts, supernatural healing even, even though they don't quite have the faith for what is going on. And James gives us an example. He talks about Elijah. He gives Elijah for us as this kind of model of faith. And at first, this seems like an unfair example because if you read the Bible, Elijah's kind of like a big guy. He's important. He's, he's this symbol of powerful prophecy. So if you're reading James' letter, you're like, well, I don't know if you should be comparing me to Elijah. That doesn't seem great. I'm definitely not like him. 
But if you read Elijah's story closely, you might realize you are more like Elijah than you realize. Because Elijah is obedient and he does things in the name of God that are powerful and extraordinary. And then within minutes, it seems, within mere lines of text, he is sprinting in depression away from what just happened, thinking he's about to die. There's no way that God can protect him. He's all alone in the world. And God has to come close to him and say, um, you're, you're fine. You're going to be okay. I'm with you. And oh, by the way, you're not alone. There's like 10,000 more of you just over there. So maybe just ease back a little bit. Elijah was not a man who never experienced doubt. That's not who Scripture tells us Elijah was. So if you are, are wondering, gosh, do I have enough faith even to ask God? It's a good question. Do I appropriately trust God? But the outcome of your salvation, the outcome of healing, does not hinge on your faith. Because then you would be in charge of healing yourself. And that is never the message of Scripture. Hey, you better figure this out. If you don't, nothing's going to work out. There is instead a different invitation to instead see that Jesus is capable and trustworthy. And actually, James helps you orient yourself within that story, this open heaven story, and reminding you that you are not alone. Not just that God is with you, but this whole journey of of seeing sickness and death and sin overcome, you are not in it alone. What does he say that you should do? He says you you should have the elders come and pray for you. The assumption is, and this is the assumption of all of Scripture, is that you are connected to the community of faith. That there are people that God sends to take care of you. That there are people in your church, this church, who God has sent specifically to take care of you and to pray for you when you don't even have maybe all of the faith that you should pray. And there are people around you who are there to to bear you up and to carry you along in the journey of faith. So if you are sitting here and looking at your sickness and your doubt and your sin and you are afraid, I don't know if I can do this, you're not meant to see that picture by yourself. You are meant instead to see yourself as in the middle of a community of faith, in the middle of the people of God, who will link arms with you and, if need be, cut holes in ceilings and lower you down in front of Jesus because you can't drag yourself there yourself. God has intended for you to be a part not of just His healing of the world, but of the community of God's healing for the world. If you are isolated and alone, and bearing the heavy burden of sickness and sin, you are not where God wants you to be. He wants you in this people, with His people, born up by His people, 
This is another way that God interrupts history and blows the lid off the world. And this is right in line with this other thing that he's dealing with here, not just sickness, but sin. And what what the language, I think, is really trying to hint hint at that it's hard to translate into English is, is it's not just that if you have a sin problem and a sickness problem, he's saying, even if this is a sin sickness problem, even if, even if this whole thing was connected for some reason to sin, there is healing even for that. But even if you somehow figure this is my fault, that, that this is some sort of judgment or you've been living a life of sin and, and now you're just sick, like maybe you just shouldn't be out drinking that much the night before and so you're sick the next morning, even if there is some sin at play, even for that there is healing. And so what does what God encourage, command you to do in this passage but to confess your sin regularly to one another? And it's good to listen to the commands of James and ask a question, am I actually doing this? Do you confess your sin regularly to someone other than God? It's easy to take this passage and say, well, yeah, I need to pray every day and ask for forgiveness. You do. But that's not what James is saying. James is saying you should confess your sin to one another. And God brings healing in that. Why? Because you're never meant to be alone. But even in the sin that might plague you in private ways, God is intended to put you in a community of faith that other people might be avenues of healing in and to you. So this is a very practical question. If you are sick, do you really feel like you can and would call an elder in this church or whatever church you may be a part of and say, would you come and pray for me? And do you regularly confess your sins to one another? Is that something you actually do? And this is, this is the, the line between feels like and, and does. Because nobody feels like confessing your sin regularly to one another. And for many of us, a lot of people don't feel like asking for help in any sort of way. The emphasis, once again, in the book of James is, what do you do? Not what do you feel, but what do you do? And this is another place where James can help us, point us in the direction of doing, backing our way into feeling. You understand what I'm saying? You may not feel, you won't feel like confessing your sin. It doesn't work that way. But if you will confess your sin and experience the way that God might minister to you and bring healing by that act of confession, that that moment when your brother or your sister would pray for you, soon your heart may learn to recognize confession as a good thing, as a gift, as a freeing thing, and then you you might start to feel like it. Would you 
have that kind of relationship, maybe not with everybody, probably, definitely not with everybody, but would you have that relationship with somebody? Underneath this life of community and this world with a lid off the top of it is a central question for James that is there throughout his whole book. Do you see Jesus? Do you see him and do you trust him for who he really is? James is is actively pushing against and fighting this whole book against a, a mode of claiming Jesus where you say, I will live my life and then when I die, I got my ticket punched and I can go to heaven. And James's assumption is that we see Jesus for who he really is, the presently reigning Lord of heaven and earth who points us towards a life that is good, not just for us, but for the whole world. Do you trust Jesus to be that way for you in your life right now? Is there works that goes with your faith because your faith is alive in a living Jesus? Can you give your life away for the sake and the benefit of the poor, trusting that Jesus will be enough for you in whatever your circumstances? Can you give up the identity of your own honor, your own sake, for the sake of others, trusting that Jesus has identified you as you really are and is the Lord of your status And that is forever anchored in him. Can you give up a life of worry because you trust that he will watch over you and care for you? And see, James here is actually driving us towards a real full picture and understanding of the gospel. Because Jesus, his brother, came and proclaimed that the kingdom of God is here. That the reigning God of of heaven and earth, he is present. And you can live in his kingdom now. You can live an eternal kind and quality of life now. Will you come and see this king now? And will you respond to the good news of that invasive kingdom that changes everything? That is the gospel that Jesus preached. And James is helping us see that we cannot just cut off this world from the kingdom and say, one day when I die, then I'll get to the kingdom of heaven. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand now. And Jesus invites you and me to respond and to repent, to turn away from other kinds of kingdoms and to come into that kingdom now and to live as citizens of that kingdom now, not in the future, not one day later, not when you shed your body, which is bothering you so much, you're just some disembodied spirit. That's not what he says. Do you want to live in the kingdom now? And James's assumption here in this section in the whole letter is that that kingdom actually is at hand, that we actually should live in that kingdom, and that that kingdom life is a better kind and quality of life that is in fact eternal in nature, that has no end. Do you trust Jesus 
now, to be that kind of king now with you. Yes, you are imperfect. We are imperfect. We stumble in this life of faith, but the kingdom of God was never about your proficiency or mine, but about the sufficiency of Jesus. Does your faith have legs because you trust that Jesus actually is alive now? Or does your faith, your walk with God indicate that you really don't believe that Jesus is alive and reigning? James can be used to sort of beat on doubters. That's what it can feel like. Ugh, I fall so short. Ah, I fail this test of faith time and again. And what James is actually doing and pointing the way to this good life with Jesus. is saying, come home. Come back. That's how he ends his letter. Come back. Jesus is still there for you, even if you have failed to live the kind of kingdom life that he intended for you. You've not crossed some magical line of demarcation where now it's too far for you. God can't, it's, God can't do anything for you. Jesus is still the gate to the kingdom. He's still the one that stamps your passport and establishes your citizenship. It's all about Jesus. It's always only all about Jesus. And Jesus wants to be in your life in a real and vibrant way, in the mundane, repeating particularities of sickness and sin, this regular confession and the colds and the sufferings, both big and small of life. Jesus, he wants to be in your life and for your life to be in him. As we end this book of James, my question to you, and I think it's the natural question that the text of James puts to us is, do you trust Jesus for who He is? Do you see Him for who He claims to be? The Lord of heaven and earth that invades His creation to redeem it from the inside out. Do you see Him and do you trust Him? If, if you do not, if over the weeks in this series or in this time in your life when God is doing other things elsewhere, if you realize the answer is no, that you very deeply do not trust Him. The cross is standing in front of you today. But today would be the day that you stop living in your own kingdom, but you would instead reach out to trust Him and find that He never expected you to be perfect and fully formed in and of your own making, but instead that He wanted to scoop you up and bring you into the kingdom Himself. And if you do trust Jesus, you say, I, I've seen Jesus, this is the Jesus that I trust. And James is reminding you of the full force of the gospel, that you cannot say that you trust Jesus and then cut off the life of the kingdom for some future date if you really and seriously see Him and trust Him.
then today is the day that you live his kind of life. And tomorrow is the day. And the day after is the day. And when you fail, when you fall short, it is not the moment where you have to figure, am I in or out? That's not the case. He has established your citizenship. Now live like it. Live like it. Now and forever. Indeed, for all eternity. That is the kind of life that Jesus has for you. It is His own life that has no end. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You that the Gospel is, is big. It's, it's consuming. It seeks to consume all of us. That Your good news is really good news that not even things like sickness and death can stand before You. That You are, you are crushing the powers of sin and death in us and in the whole world. And Lord Jesus, I pray that You would help us to believe that, to trust in You. God, I pray that we would be drawn to the breathtaking bigness of the Gospel like coming around the corner and seeing an, an incredible mountain vista stretched out before us that was for one moment or another hidden. And now we are reminded how beautiful and glorious the way of the kingdom is. And Father, I pray for all of those who have never come around that corner, seen the life of God stretching out before them. And Jesus, I pray that they will hear in this text your desire to involve yourself in their life. They will respond with trust and love. We need you, Holy Spirit. We need you, Holy Spirit. We are people who very often only can want to want to have faith. But you are the one that, that brings faith alive in us like a miracle. So God, shower us with the mercies of your miraculous love. Pull out of us a life of faith that we could not create for ourselves. Help us to see you exalted and lifted high, Lord Jesus. For in that vision is the very heart and the summary of the Christian life. Make much of yourself, Lord Jesus, and make us to love you much. We love you, Jesus. Amen.